This podcast is brought to you by JDRF Australia and Sanofi. Hello, I'm Andrew Gagan, and welcome to the T1D Tune-In. T1D used to be known as juvenile diabetes and is often regarded as a disease affecting just children, but they never grow out of it. In this series, we'll hear from adults with type 1 who are leading inspirational lives. We'll also talk to the brilliant researchers working on exciting new treatments and are striving to find a cure. In this episode, we meet a young Australian who's defying the stereotype of what it means to be a model. She's also a researcher from the University of Western Australia, working on a PhD in type 1 diabetes. But recently, she caught the nation's attention as a contestant on the TV show, The Bachelor. You know, I just went for it for fun. I thought, why not just go for it? And then a couple of weeks later, they told me I was going on. Next thing I know, I'm in the mansion. <laughs> it's my pleasure to welcome Christina Abramov to our T1D TuneIn podcast. Hi, Christina. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, you're a scientist who also happens to be a model. That's a rare combination. <laughs> how, do you, how do you balance two very demanding careers? Um, It is a lot. It is extremely exhausting, but I feel like they're both a rest from each other. So, for example, if I have a really long week at, you know, uni, testing, researching, um, I feel like modelling is a nice creative outlet I can sort of use to relax with because it's obviously so different. You're using different parts of your brain. After a lot of modelling and you're absolutely exhausted from that, it's really nice to go back into the lab as well and you know analyze samples or test participants even writing the thesis like I feel that they balance each other out and you know it's a nice way to just sort of be able to express myself in two different ways. So you talk about that life your life in a lab and I know you developed a love of science at school what attracts you to science? So what attracted me to science was just how I know how important it is in every other aspect. One of the things that is so important is health, and that's something that science is really directed at in trying to just, you know, generate all this knowledge which is just trying to help people and improve their quality of life and I know that I wanted to do something like that. Yeah, okay. So tell us how you got into science when you left school. Well, it all started from school. Obviously, science was my favourite subject in high school, so it just made sense at that time to do something science-related at university. So obviously, I just sort of fell into that. But then actually in university, getting that hands-on experience, I was very lucky that the degree I picked was something that I did enjoy and wanted to go further with. Okay, tell us about that. So physiology is basically just looking at the body systems in detail, how the cells will communicate with each other, and then looking at it in a disease perspective, looking at hormones. Uh, It's very similar to what people think human biology is, but it's more um, looking at how the cells signal each other and the body systems in detail. So Christina, you're now working on a PhD. Tell us what you're researching. So my PhD is looking at the effects of water immersion or exercising in water of different temperatures on how it affects glycemic control. 
So I'm doing my PhD at the University of Western Australia as well as the Perth Children's Hospital with the um, Telethon Kids Institute. And we've had a couple of parents mention to the doctors that when their children go swimming either in the ocean or at swimming lessons that they're having a couple of issues with their glycemic control, which is different to uh, exercising on land. Okay, so before you began your research, what did you know about type 1 diabetes and in particular hypoglycemia? So before I started my PhD, I actually didn't know that much about type 1 diabetes at all. I think this is also the same with the public perception is that, you know, they don't realize what they have to go through. They think that they just have their insulin and that's all there is. When my supervisor mentioned type 1 diabetes, I instantly went on, did some research, and I did some clinical placement as well with the doctor when she saw that the individuals were type 1 diabetes, and that really just opened my eyes to what they really go through, which is why I felt so compelled to pick this project. Yes, yeah, so physical exercise increases the risk of hypos. Mm-hmm. Is it the case that there's an associated fear developing a hypo and therefore people with type 1 diabetes are less likely to participate in in sport and exercise. Yes, so that is extremely true. So looking at the literature, individuals with type 1 diabetes definitely have recorded lower exercise participation rates as well as lower um, fitness levels, which is likely associated due to the fear of going hypoglycemic. So what is the impact uh, of the environmental factors? What impact do they have on the, the plasma glucose response to exercise, specifically as you're looking at swimming in cold water? Yes, so basically there's not much out there about you know the external factors outside of exercise, um, which is why we're looking at the cold water. Particularly in children, swimming is one of the most popular sports, especially in Australia. And The thing about water is if someone's just in the middle of being hypoglycemic in the water is particularly dangerous because of, you know, the risk of drowning as well. So this is something that definitely needs to be looked at. So, Christina, you mentioned that risk of drowning. Is that related to how temperature affects the transportation and delivery of insulin in the body? Well, so no, the risk of drowning isn't isn't related to that in particular, but it's just due to the known symptoms of hypoglycemia, which is disorientation and, you know, the potential passing out. So obviously, if that was to happen in water, that is something very concerning. Absolutely. Which brings us to that point of the way that that insulin is affected by temperature. Are you looking at that? So this is another thing is we've had participants mention the opposite happening to them. So the risk that they go hyperglycemic and that would be likely explained to how insulin is transported. So in the cold, we would expect, you know, either where they inject the insulin or where the insulin is infused. When they go into the cold, that's going to stay where it's been injected or infused rather than being transported around the body because in the cold, you get vasoconstriction, which means the insulin won't be able to be transported around the body as efficiently as they would be at a room temperature or warm temperature. So how are you testing your hypothesis? So basically, we have built a pool uh, specifically for this research project, which is really exciting um, because we weren't obviously allowed to use 
a big Olympic swimming pool because we have to change the temperature of the water quite regularly. So they're in this uh, mini pool and they're going to be standing there for one hour. So they come in three times. So they're going to be either standing on land at room temperature or they'll be standing in cold water at 23 degrees Celsius. So that will be the same as the ocean in summertime or at uh, thermoneutral water, so that's water that doesn't feel warm or cold. While they're standing, we're going to be measuring plasma glucose, blood flow at the site of insulin injection. We're also going to be measuring plasma insulin, and we're going to be hooking them up to electromyography leads, which will help us determine if they're shivering. And we're also going to be measuring carbohydrate oxidation fat oxidation and general metabolic rate so we can compare it at the three conditions so once they're finished standing for that one hour they're then going to go into a room at room temperature to recover and we're going to be measuring the same things okay so you've obviously got to find some volunteers who have you found who's participating in the study i've actually got quite you know, quite a large range of participants. Our age um, bracket is between 15 and 40. And we've gotten just that. I have participants who are 16 and I have participants in their late 30s as well. And I have quite an even split of female and male at the minute. I still do need participants, obviously. I think that's probably one of the hardest parts of, of the PhD project. So just trying to find those people that are willing to commit to that time. Yeah, because there's quite a lot of their time and obviously we can't do the study if their glucose levels aren't within a certain range because obviously it's not safe for them as well. You know, having type 1, that's not something that it can control. We've had to stop a lot of testing sessions because of their glucose range or they wouldn't be able to make it because their glucose range wasn't in the required range. Now, something that has also proved to be an obstacle for your research is COVID, of course. But before that struck, you did take time out from your research to appear on one of the most popular TV shows in Australia. (laughs) How did you end up on The Bachelor? So I was actually messaged one day on Instagram, hey, would you go on The Bachelor? And at this point of time, I wasn't really, you know, thinking I was going to go. So I just said yes, because, you know, like there's nothing to lose. You can always turn turn it down later if it was to go further so I just said yes and then then they called me up and gave me an interview time audition time and then I just you know I just went for it for fun I thought why not just go for it and then a couple weeks later they told me I was going on next thing I know I'm in the mansion (laughs) and what was your university supervisor's reaction to that he wasn't actually that surprised because I've had to take time off work for things like Miss Universe Australia and just modelling. So I I feel like he always knew something like that was on my radar. He thought it was really funny, but it wasn't a complete shock. (laughs) So did you enjoy the harsh glare and the spotlight? Yeah, I actually did enjoy it. Like obviously it's bittersweet, but you have to just learn to – well, I have an extremely thick skin, so I don't let any of the negativity get to me. And in fact – the audience were under the misapprehension that you were actually masquerading as a scientist on the show. How did that play out? I'm not sure how this happened, but someone made a fake IMDB about me being an actress. 
So they thought, they just made this theory that Warners had hired me as an actress to pose as a scientist. All right, but you had to prove that you were a scientist. I didn't feel the need to. I just wanted to for fun. (laughs) All right, what was the reaction to that? Well, I actually had a really positive response, especially from girls. I feel like a lot of girls get undermined for their intellect, just purely on maybe the photos they post or how they look. So a lot of girls messaged me saying really positive things, which made me feel really good. Now, it did prove to be a a fairly fortuitous distraction because, as I mentioned, COVID has essentially put the brakes on your research project. Yeah, so what happened was I went to the mansion in around late Feb, around March time. So I thought I would have had to take three months off for filming. When I got eliminated, they basically told me that the WA borders were closing and I had had to make that flight or... I could potentially not be able to come back home. So, and then when I came back home, my supervisor said to me anyway, like, you can't test. I had no idea what was going on, by the way. Um, In the mansion, we don't have internet access, phone access or anything. So coming back to how the world was, was extremely crazy. But the time I did take off from my PhD was just, it kind of just really worked out well because I couldn't even test anyway. All right. Well, obviously, WA has done very well as far as uh, containing COVID is concerned. So you're back on track now. When do you expect that you'll be able to complete your PhD? So um, a PhD usually takes around three and a half, four years. So probably end of next year. Is anyone else doing any similar research involved in uh, hypos and obviously the environmental effects such as being in, in cold water? Uh, I don't think anyone is doing cold water or water immersion specifically, but someone who was doing their honours last year who I helped out with was looking at the effects of altitude. So people that live in places with a higher altitude and how that affects glycemia as well. I don't know the results of that yet. I don't know if they've been analysed, but that was also done um, at my university as well. And I think that's extremely interesting. And you were saying you have struggled to a point to find volunteers for your study. Those who have participated so far, what's their reaction been? Have they, what have they said to you as far as perhaps their own life experience of, of being in different environments and dealing with hypos? A few have mentioned that being in the cold, they do notice more hypos during the cold. So this is just all anecdotal things I've heard from them. So this isn't scientific work, but they have said that the cold does make them go hypoglycemic. However, they have also said that swimming or water immersion has made them go either hypoglycemic or hyperglycemic. Something is clearly happening that needs to be looked at. And Christina, given you're now heavily invested in type 1 diabetes research, have you thought about what you might do beyond your PhD? I definitely want to stay in type 1 diabetes research. Now that I know what they've gone through, now that I've met all the participants, I'm so invested and I want to just know more and more. I don't know the outcomes of my study yet, but I know that there's so many more questions that are coming from this that need to be answered as well. So I definitely want to spend the next couple of years in this area. And do you have any particular thoughts on the future of diabetes treatment? Because my research isn't specifically on the treatment and I'm not a clinician, um, I don't have much experience in the actual treatment. But obviously, I think. Potentially, we need to also look at other hormones, maybe like glucagon, which I think a couple of people are doing. Obviously, treatment could be better. 
Um, there's no denying that even with the closed loop systems and everything, we want them to live in life as, you know, as normal as possible. Meanwhile, I'd imagine that you're hoping your research will make living with diabetes more manageable. Yes, I really hope that my research specifically can make them, you know, go to the beach or just hang out at the pool with their friends without their diabetes being an issue. Christina, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us, Christina Abramov. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to find out more about JDRF Australia or get involved with their various initiatives supporting the Australian T1D community, visit their website, jdrf.org.au. For all the latest updates on T1D research, search JDRF Australia on Facebook or follow them on Instagram under at JDRFAUS. And keep an ear out for more episodes in our T1D tune-in series, wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Until then, I'm Andrew Gagan. Thanks for listening. Views expressed in this podcast are broadcast for informational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice. Consult your team of healthcare professionals for health or personal advice that is right for you.